Hello, and welcome to Morola Story Podcast. I am your host, Caitlin Vagadis. In the previous episode, we talked a little bit about oxytocin and the effect that uh, hookup culture can have on depression and anxiety and how it affects like your external validation and how you view yourself and how much that can change. Um, in this episode, I will go and continue on with the friendship that started between me and Seth after the Friends with Benefits ended. If you think about what would happen if you put two people together that did not communicate their feelings at all to each other or really communicate well when things were upsetting them or anything along those lines, and one that definitely has anxiety, depression, and self-esteem issues, as well as friends with benefits thrown into the mix, as well as priesthood discernment, and you pretty much get the following as a result. first time I entered Eucharistic Adoration. It was a request Seth had made when we went out to eat and said it was extremely helpful for him to sort out his thoughts. I still struggled with the idea of him entering the priesthood, and if I'm being honest, I was a little upset with God. So when I went, I felt that the idea of going felt ridiculous, and I had only planned to go to show support for Seth. Upon entering the church, my heart raced, and it was as if I entered a room with someone important inside and I sat down in the pew and took a second to wait for my heart rate to slow down. And I began to pray and tried to figure out what Seth was going through. And I was shocked to feel a sense of peace at the notion of priesthood. So I prayed for Seth and the serenity to accept his departure from me. From that day forward, I would attend Eucharistic Adoration weekly for roughly a year and a half. Each time I would pray the rosary, read passages in the Bible, or sit alone with my thoughts. And at some point, I would turn to pray for Seth. And when I go to this day, I still pray for him. As the summer progressed, I began soccer camp, and Seth started football. So our schedules had become busier, and his messages became less frequent. But it didn't feel that it was because of the increased busyness in our schedule. Rather, it felt that he was trying to remove himself from me. I had hoped that it was only my imagination, but it was hard to ignore the negative possibilities that were intrusively making themselves into my head throughout the day. Was I no longer worth his time after we ended being friends with benefits? I had brought it up once and he told me that he was busy and although I knew that his schedule was busier than mine and football was more involved than soccer and he worked more hours than I did, I knew that he could still make the time to respond if he wanted to and it just felt at times that he didn't want to. Besides, at the beginning of the camps, he was doing well with the responses. They only started to fade as time went on, and the start of our senior year crept closer. Only about a week into the school year, I was sitting in the band room, waiting for lunch, when I couldn't ignore that thought that I no longer meant as much as I used to when we were making out, and I brought it up to him. It was the first time that I actually expressed that I was upset with him. I was angry at the at this point and ready to fight, preparing myself for him to say that he wasn't feeling it and that he wanted to call it quits. But he didn't. And he said that he was just busy and that's all it was. But I was still preparing, still fearing that goodbye that I felt was inevitable. The texting began to pick up more and became more frequent after I expressed my concerns. At the beginning, Seth had... Seth was always really good about listening to my concerns and trying his best to amend them, 
But as my paranoia continued and the arguing began, that effort would consequently fade. In this moment, everything was still going really well. And I asked to make plans to hang out, and Seth kept avoiding it for nearly a week. When he came straight out and told me that he wanted space, because as he put it, I was a distraction from the discernment of the priesthood. He still wanted to remain friends, but for a month or so, he didn't think we should talk regularly. And he didn't offer much explanation other than that. My anxiety was left to fill in the blanks. Did he like me back, or could he only see me as a hookup, and which made me a distraction? I had hoped it was the former, but that caused issues as well, because I wanted a relationship I could not have, and would not happen despite any possibility that he likes me as more than just a friend. But other thoughts entered my mind as well, that perhaps he didn't like me at all, that he was actually trying to break things off for good, but he was trying to let me down easy. I questioned whether I was wanted at all. I found it extremely difficult not to text him, because I had always relied on him as an outlet to talk about my day, school, soccer, and friends, and although I had other options to talk to others about it, it wasn't really an option I had explored in the past. I discussed the situation with some of my St. Henry friends as well as the friends that I was reconnecting with during the school year, to which they found it difficult to understand as well. A month later, after we returned from space, Seth was different. I felt less important to him as I was before. In addition, without further explanation, for the reason for the space, I was unsure how to feel from it. The intrusive thoughts about my place in his life only intensified, as I overanalyzed every text and action in an attempt to figure it out. Despite the fact that he wanted to remain friends, I couldn't shut out the idea that I was bothering him if I text him, and the pressure of constantly watching what I said or stopping myself from expressing my concerns because I convinced myself that he didn't want to hear it had begun to make me paranoid and irritable. I was easily and often upset. Since I felt that I was a burden, any joking comment that he made over text, I couldn't help but take to heart, even if I recognized that it was a joke. I only took into consideration anything and everything that could prove that I was nothing and meaningless. But when it got so bad, and I feared the end was near, I would transition to holding out hope and start to do the opposite to prove that maybe there was that we could get through the rough times and that I still meant something to him. I was reading too far into things and filtering oh so much to the point that my own tactics of confirmation bias was tainting my perception of what was really going on around me. All the while I would continue to work on the book I was creating for Seth with the Bible verses and prayers and I began transitioning it from verses to stories and helpful information about Catholicism that could be helpful to him and after hearing his story and testament that summer, I began writing out my own faith journey. I wrote out my experience with suicide and everything that had happened, as well as the story of my grandma. During the summer, after I t nearly took my life, my grandma had fallen ill, but I listened to her talk about how she was ready to go and meet her family who had gone before her in heaven. So I felt guilty to pray for her to stay when she was so prepared to move on. So I had prayed that summer that she would live to see me take her name, Lorena, and Holy Confirmation. She had always taught me so much about the faith through her own dedication. She lived for another five months, and one week after being confirmed, she had passed away. In regards to Seth and my current situation of the time, soccer season has ended and I began to pick up on drinking again. As a result, all the accusations, fears, and concerns that I had bit my tongue about would leak out during the during drunk text. 
Since alcohol had been involved, many of the texts didn't always make sense and were unfiltered and over the top. In the following morning, I would find myself trying to amend how I chose to say it while still trying to defend what I was saying and why I was upset and found that you can really only do one or the other and not both. Furthermore, I started seeing Seth at parties. But while I was drinking, I would tend to try to fall back into the friends with benefits because I felt that I was more wanted then than I was at the moment. My drunkenness upset Seth and he would often call me annoying and, and in his own words, a horn dog. Which although I knew I was talkative when I was drunk, I began to become self, self-conscious about the amount I would talk when I was drinking. In later years, I would have such terrible social anxiety after a night of drinking that I felt that I was a nuisance to everyone I was with, and I would have intrusive thoughts about my place in my friends group and how they thought of me for the remainder of the week. It got so bad that I decided to quit drinking for roughly two months at the start of my sophomore year of college. Also, in regards to the clinginess, I felt so much shame the next day because I didn't want to go back to friends with benefits, but in the intoxication of the moment, I felt more important to Seth when we were friends with benefits than I was in the current situation. And really, it was a desperate, embarrassing cry for help and meaningless validation. At the beginning of November, we had our second falling out, when I finally, after months of denial, decided to directly tell him that I liked him, even though I knew it wouldn't change anything. I needed to confront the feelings that I was hiding horribly for so long. In response to the confession, he explained that he didn't understand why I hooked up with other people during the summer if I liked him, and he was still discerning the priesthood. Therefore, he didn't want a relationship or thought of me in that way. I told him that I knew that, and I wasn't upset that he didn't like me back, since that was not something he could control, and although I meant it, it didn't make it any easier to accept. However, after listening to my concerns, I felt that Seth had begun to reach out to me more often, and we started driving each other home or to parties on the weekends and talking more frequently. At the end of November, I started working more on his book to get ready for his birthday. However, despite that we were talking more, I began to question why I was even creating the book, since I didn't think he would even look at it or use it. But it helped me learn more about my own faith, so I continued. For the book, I got two local priests to write their own notes and advice for discerning priesthood. I remember one priest commenting in his writing that Seth was had supportive friends and complimented me for what I was doing, but reading it only made me feel worse. I felt that I didn't actually mean anything to Seth, and since I wanted to break things off and go my separate ways, my separate way when I first created the book, I felt that I wasn't truly supportive. Also, since I felt that I was a bother, a bother to Seth, I hardly felt that I was a friend, but rather someone he kept around out of guilt for the previous summer, or at least that was what I was telling myself. And I, as usual, was preparing for the goodbye, and I was still anticipating it from Seth. When he picked me up from a friend's house around Thanksgiving time, during which I had showed him pictures of the prom dresses I was looking at, he started talking about how dumb prom was, which was stung a little because little did he know, I had wanted to ask him to go to prom with me that year. When December rolled around, I had given Seth the book for his birthday. He stopped by my house after a basketball practice to pick it up and gave me a hug when I handed it to him. I remember wishing I didn't let go so quickly. I didn't have the courage to ask for space because I still wasn't ready to let go, but I was also too afraid to ask him in person to go to prom with me because it was really early yet and I was afraid he might say no. 
Later that night, I went out drinking and finally drunk texted him to ask him to prom. But I was having a rough night at the time, so instead of feeling relieved when he said yes, I felt ashamed and stupid that it happened over a drunk text. Things improved between us, although the fears that lived in my head hardly subsided. But I began to be a little more help a little more hopeful when we went out to eat on New Year's Eve to talk and catch up, and afterwards he even paid for my meal. Not long after, I adopted a new puppy named Kelso and brought it over to Seth's house for him to see, and we ended up watching a movie in his basement with his sister and brother. Since the two meetings happened so close together, I began to regain hope that things were changing between us. Nevertheless, not long after, Seth stopped texting back, and when I confronted him about it, that's when he said that he wanted space for a second time. I began to freak out about prom and whether we were still going, and he said that he just wanted space for a little bit to sort things through. However, keeping with the theme of the last time you requested space, he never specified what he was sorting through, and my mind often wondered about the possible shortcomings that I had, or what I had done wrong, or what was wrong with me. The space in our friendship lasted another month. Because of the intrusive thoughts, diminishing self-esteem that came with the uncertainty, and also the fact that I knew that I liked him still and was forcing a difficult friendship, I was becoming irritable and I hated constantly being angry, upset, or lashing out because it wasn't really like me and I felt that I was not myself around him. Therefore, not long after reconnecting after his request for space, I had requested space as well. Despite that it was a request that I made, I began to fear what I would do when prom rolled around. Would we still go? And if we did, would we even talk to each other? Regardless, towards the end of March, I attended his semi-state basketball game, even though he didn't ask me to or know I was coming. I knew that it was a big moment for him and I didn't want to potentially miss it because of a falling out between us, but going made me feel like I was desperate and I hated the feeling. The same weekend I had broken my leg milking cows three days before my first track meet. This had caused me to start worrying about how I was no longer going to be able to march my quints in Disneyland, miss my entire senior track season, and may not be able to walk down promenade. And even if I did, the likeliness of me wearing heels was low, and Seth was over a foot taller than me. This added to the stress I was already feeling between the two of us, and I was already trying to process so much simultaneously. We hardly talked anymore, and if we did, we argued shortly after the conversation began. Our version of arguments turned into me being upset and Seth mostly ignoring it. Because of all of the insecurities and anxiety I had, much of the things I was upset about was unnecessary. His patience had diminished. After every argument, I felt guilty and felt I needed to compensate, so I was trying to be nicer and offer rides or offer help for him. But when he turned me away, it just made me more upset. When prom rolled around, much to my surprise, we had a good time. However, at the end of the night, he was drunk and we kissed. And I felt extremely guilty because I felt that I forced it. And since he didn't remember it, I had to tell him the following day. Anything good we started to get back began to fall apart. To worsen it even further, I attended St. Henry prom the following week and got destroyed at the after-after prom. And although I don't remember a thing, apparently I was hanging all over him and annoying him constantly. He even told me the following day that he went home early because he wanted to get away from me. What I did remember, however, was that I had vented to a friend that I had kissed the previous summer about the situation between me and Seth, and that's when he led me outside and kissed me. 
Mitch, the friend that I had kissed, told me that he felt horrible the next day because he felt that he took advantage of the fact that I was drunk and upset about me and Seth. He didn't want to talk about the situation because of the guilt that he was feeling, but that only made me feel worse and shameful because I didn't want to tell anyone else that it happened, and he was the only person I could turn to who knew the whole situation, and out of his guilt, he would no longer talk to me. Seth and I had fallen apart after St. Henry prom and went into a cycle of constantly arguing. Shortly after prom, one of my friends that had been a part of the drama the drama my sophomore year and was still stirring the pot had started talking to Seth on Snapchat and told our friends that she was talking to him as in potentially dating. I was extremely upset by this news, especially since I've, I've talked about Seth to her in science nearly every day throughout the year and I confronted him about it. Seth was pissed that I was interfering with his business and told me to stay out of it. One of the only times he's ever confronted me about an issue first, and I felt extremely guilty. However, since he was upset that I was in his business and assuming that, th and assuming things, he had failed to mention that they were not talking at all. Furthermore, I had made the mistake of warning him of the fact that I don't really get along with her, and he felt that I was telling them telling him who he could and could not see. I had told him that if he wa wanted to see other people, I didn't think I wanted to stick around anymore because of our history. I doubt that any girl that he was seeing wanted me around, so he responded that he wouldn't date anyone that had a problem with who he was friends with, but I also knew that I would not be able to hide or control my emotions if that were to happen, since I have been extremely unsuccessful in the past few months trying to control the impulse to act on emotion. So I ended things between us. As usual, a week later, I found out that him and my friend were not actually talking at all, and I felt guilty. And like I usually do, I began to be extremely nice to him. And call He called me out and said that I was forcing it, and it was not a good look. Furthermore, he pointed out quite truthfully that I didn't know what I wanted. As it would happen, the following week, I went back to their house with his sister after a graduation and waited for my mom to pick me up. His sister fell asleep immediately on the couch, and shortly afterwards, Seth walked down into the basement after going out with his friends that night. I tried to talk to him about our situation and apologized. And although he seemed drunk, the lights were out, and it was hard to tell in the dark. But he told me not to worry about it, and that it was all okay. And then he fell asleep. Before my mom could pick me up, I too fell asleep, and his sister had to leave early in the morning to work. So when I woke up, it was just Seth and me, and I called his name a few times to see if he would bring me home. But he was half asleep and hungover and didn't even realize as he walked over to the bathroom in the basement to take a shower. While he was washing up, I sat awkwardly alone in their basement, and his dad came down and asked me if I, how I was getting home, and I explained that I fell asleep when my mom was supposed to pick me up, and I had assumed that Seth was bringing me home now. So his dad went upstairs, and when Seth walked out of the bathroom, he looked at me and says, When did you get here? My heart dropped like a weight in my chest, and I tried to hide the fact that I was immediately frustrated, and I knew he definitely didn't remember the conversation from the previous night at all. But I also knew that if he didn't remember what he did, if I were to yell at him now, he wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about. Before waiting for my response, he went upstairs, and I sat alone in the basement of his house, and text my mom to see how I was getting home from there. That's when Seth's mom walked down and said that she would bring me home instead of Seth. I decided not to bring up the brief conversation we had the previous night, but after a few drinks that next day, I text him. I was intoxicated and upset. I worded it with some rather colorful language. 
but since he had no idea what I was talking about, and the message probably seemed like just another unreasonable outburst from me, he left me on red, and that was the last time we spoke for months. So in this episode, I'm going to go over mostly like anxiety and relationship, love languages, and things along those lines. Uh, I, I do have a lot more information in this reflection than I usually do, so I'll try to make it quick and kind of buzz through this. So if you have any other questions or anything that you want me to elaborate on, you can email me or even if you wanted to like DM me on Instagram and I'll try to come back around and answer any of the questions that you might have. So to begin, uh, I have a few things from DXL Anxiety, which is an Instagram account, on some things that they listed as signs of anxiety in relationships. The first one being fear of not being good enough for your partner. This was something that I constantly felt with Seth. Like I just felt like if he knew me or like as he got to know me, that was more cause for him to leave. And then in future Not really relationships, but, like, when I was seeing other people, like, that was such a big fear that would always haunt me. And the nightmares of losing them was something that I would have with Seth and other people as well. Uh, Needing reassurance that they actually love you. Uh, Second-guessing yourself. Only showing parts of yourself that you think they'll accept. Fear that they'll leave you. Feeling like you're bothering your partner. Struggling to put your guard down. Desiring to be hugged extra tight when the symptoms set in. Withholding your struggle because you don't want to scare them away. Double-checking plans. Reading too much into text. Struggling to open up about your insecurities. Worrying whether you're satisfying your partner in the bedroom. Or avoiding difficult conversations or conflicts to please them. I would say just about all of these are something that I experienced with Seth, especially like avoiding difficult conversations. Most of that would come out when I was drinking, which is the exact wrong time to bring that up. Other things about like fears that they'll leave you, nightmares about them leaving you, feeling that you're inadequate or like upsetting them constantly or a bother. That is something that's really common in anxiety and it's not really something that they provoke. So even if Seth had been like the most perfect human being, I was probably still going to be having those thoughts and those doubts just because that's what happens with people with anxiety, especially in relationships. I just want to note, like, if you have anxiety in relationships, it's important to kind of look into, like, what the symptoms are. And once you can recognize that it's a symptom of anxiety, it's a little easier to move past it rather than kind of internalizing it and acting upon it. Uh, The next one that I have is self-sabotaging, which can happen in relationships. It can also happen in the workplace as well. Uh, This list of the signs I got from the Real Depression Project, which is another Instagram account. They say, you push people away because you feel yourself getting too close to them. You procrastinate on the most important things. You overwork to get to the finish line quickly, neglecting your needs along the way. You don't ask for help when you need it even when you're burned out. You put everyone else's needs above your own. You allow perfectionism to prevent you from finishing or even starting on something that is important. You minimize slash shrug off your accomplishments. You take responsibility for things that aren't your fault. 
You lean on unhealthy habits that mask your emotions or numb them instead of feeling or processing them. You criticize yourself for little mistakes you make, rejecting the love given to you because you feel undeserving of it. You compare yourself to others and use the comparison to determine your own worth. You hyper-focus on negative possibilities of future events without considering any of the positive outcomes that could happen. You refuse to forgive yourself for past mistakes. You even criticize yourself constantly for for them instead of giving yourself the compassion you need to move forward. You always commit to things when you're checking in with your emotions and considering whether you like to do them. So some of these things that uh, I listed that I did with like relationships is not being able to forgive yourself for past mistakes. The friends with benefits was something that constantly like haunted me and that when we got in arguments that always got brought up, like I couldn't move past it because it was like this guilt that I couldn't forgive myself for. And I just felt like it was who I was when it really doesn't define who I was at all. But I was letting like all those situations define me. Also taking uh, credit for anything that wasn't necessarily my fault. Any argument, if, even if you did something wrong, I would just say like, oh, well, it's my fault anyways. And I would always just take the blame rather than actually working through the issues. Comparing yourself to others, like that can kind of be like a jealousy thing. I know Seth always had like a lot of girls interested in him, I, I guess, cause he's always like really nice and stuff. And so I'd always get really jealous and I always felt like, oh, well, these other girls are so much better than me. So we'd often get in arguments because I was like upset about the jealousy thing. And he would kind of like brush it off because he's like, well, there's no reason to be jealous anyways. They say like minimizing or shrugging off accomplishments in the sense of relationships. It could be kind of filtering all the positive things to kind of confirm that you're not good enough or that it's falling apart when really you're doing okay. You're just ignoring all the good parts. Uh, the next part that I kind of want to go into, which like self-sabotaging in relationships is really close to codependency. And I think we often talk about codependency, but it's kind of, it took me a while to actually understand what it is. And so I'll briefly go over the signs of codependency. And this is information that I'm reading off from few Pinterest accounts. I wish I like knew what the accounts were. So if you like find it, I'll give them the credit because it's not from me. But uh, the signs that they have listed are fear of rocking the boat and upsetting others. You have a hard time thinking about your needs in a relationship. Your days are full of worrying about others. You tend to obsess about pleasing others or having others be pleased with you. You tend to overshare or overgive both emotionally, spiritually, physically, and sometimes financially. You struggle with setting boundaries and holding people accountable. You suffer from self, self-doubt and often doubt your perceptions. You may be raised by an alcoholic, narcissist, or a non-nurturing caregiver. The one that the, that is listed that I thought was like kind of interesting is kind of... You suffer from self-doubt and often doubt your perceptions. I never knew what was going on, so I felt like I couldn't tell what was in my head and what was my anxiety and what was actually the reality. And that's something that I struggle with, like even if it's not a relationship, if it's just a daily task. Uh, My sophomore year of college, that was 
a huge issue. Like I always felt like I was living in a different reality than everyone else because I was perceiving things differently because of my anxiety and depression. And I couldn't separate what was the mental illness and what was true. Obsessing with like pleasing others and having others be pleased with you. This would happen almost after every argument that I had with Seth. I would always felt like I needed to please him because I felt like I upset him and I needed to compensate for that. And that's not really the case. I have every right to be upset and I'm justified in it. And I don't need to compensate for every argument that we have. That's kind of like with this uh, setting boundaries, being unable to do that or kind of sacrificing too much of yourself for the sake of others is something really common with codependency and also with the self-sabotaging where you're just setting yourself up for like a bad situation. Here are a few things you might want to know about people with codependency. Uh, codependency is a response to trauma. So... If I had to guess, my codependency would probably be coming from like the friends that I lost and then any relationship that didn't work out in the past kind of affects relationships in the future. Codependency feels shameful. It is an unhealthy focus on other people's problems, feelings, and needs. Codependents are sensitive to criticism, which was something that I really struggled with. I just internalize any comment, even if it was a joke, and I knew it was a joke. They are super responsible, even despite like overloading themselves with like other responsibilities of other people rather than themselves. Um, they wall off their own feelings. They don't ask for what they need. Codependence give even when it gives even when it hurts. Codependency is not a mental health diagnosis, and you can change your codependent habits. Lisa A. Romano Romano commented that codependents have been programmed to believe that they need permission from others to feel what they feel, think what they think, and need what they need. And I think about every single one of those like listed is something that I can like relate to, being sensitive to criticism, giving when it hurts, uh, walling off your own feelings. Don't, not asking for what they need or feeling shameful for needing things or feeling guilty for being upset. Some advice for people with codependency is like replacing your codependency tendencies with boundaries. For example, going from thinking that someone is, that if someone is mad, it must be your fault to asking if they would like to talk about what is upsetting them later and actually figuring out what is upsetting them rather than assuming it's your fault. Going from putting your needs and emotions after others to being willing to help others while also establishing and acknowledging your own limits. Going from wanting to fix or save people to being supportive and allowing them to figure it out for themselves and just giving them a little bit of advice and a little nudge in the right direction. Uh, Moving from hiding your feelings for the sake of others to respecting the feelings of others while still honoring your own. Going from depriving yourself from your needs to accepting that it is healthy to do things for yourself rather than selfish for prioritizing self-care. So it's kind of like you should be like you should help other people and be there for them. But if it's going to put your own mental health at stake, it's not worth it for you. And you have to be able to set those boundaries and know what you can and cannot do and what's healthy for you. Another piece of advice is uh, try to 
go from feeling overwhelmed and needing control of every situation to accepting things for the way they are, learning to say no, and looking inwards to define your self-worth rather than searching for validation through others. That is something that I still struggle with. I am, I'm better now, but I'm not perfect with that at all. Like I still need validation and like acceptance from other people. I feel like all the time. Another thing would be accepting that it isn't your job to make everyone happy. Uh, Moving from compulsively trying to fix things or take care of others to accepting that others need to make their own choices. Uh, Going from judging and criticizing yourself to practicing self-compassion and positive self-talk. That's still something that I, I'm trying to work on, but it's still like really difficult because I, if I make one little mistake, I will still be upset about it years later. Another thing they suggest is moving from being a people pleaser to developing a sense of self. And you can do that through positive self-talk, kind of talking yourself through situations. Um, I usually go to Eucharistic Adoration because when I'm by myself doing a meditation or a positive self-talk, I tend to like transition into more negative thoughts where if I'm in Eucharistic adoration, since I'm in like that presence of God, it's harder for me to put myself down. I'm more aware of it and I can kind of keep on track a little more. And lastly, being truly helpful should consider the needs of others as well as your own. Respects boundaries, is flexible, has healthy distinctions between self and others, and feels like a choice rather than an obligation or compulsion, and encourages independence between you and the other person. The next thing that I would like to discuss, I believe this is the last thing I'm going to uh, talk about before we wrap it up, are the five love languages. So what the love languages are, or the ways that you interact with other people to show care, compassion, like how you love others and how you prefer others to love your, love you. So there's five different like love languages that you could have. Uh, the first one would be words of affirmation, which means that you respond better to spoken words, written notes, cards, or letters. And the way you communicate is through encouraging words and compliments, but If you were in a situation in which people use emotionally harsh words or a lot of criticism, that can kind of put a huge rift between your relationship with that other person, whether that be like a relationship between a friend, a coworker, like boyfriend, girlfriend, or anything along those lines. Because like your love language isn't just an intimate thing between significant others. It's just how you interact with everyone around you in your life. If you, ways that you can practice the words of affirmation in a sense of like self-care, if you know that you react most to words of affirmation would be keeping a gratitude jar, recite positive affirmation, watch a TED talk, write positive notes, compliment yourself. Uh, One thing also to note with the love languages, if you say like one person responds really well to words of affirmation and they thrive off of spoken words, compliments, the next person might not respond to that at all. So you could compliment someone all day long and it could mean nothing to them. But uh, and they might thrive in another love language instead. The next love language is quality time. And this would be like running errands for someone, taking trips 
doing things together, going on walks or sitting and talking to each other. It's kind of that one-on-one conversation, which is how like they communicate mostly. They also, if you're going to communicate someone who thrives off of quality time, they're probably going to prefer having quiet places with no interruptions and undivided, like undivided attention. And even though they like that quality time, they rather have that one-on-one rather than a group setting. Uh, if you ha- are with someone that thrives off of quality time, you should avoid too much, like doing too much with large groups or like giving them isolation. Like solitude and isolation are kind of two different things. Solitude's kind of like a positive connotation to it where it's like you're just being alone with yourself to give yourself a little break. and But like isolation's kind of cutting them off. And you should also avoid having gaps between meetings. So if you have someone where you haven't seen them in a while, that kind of can throw off like alarm bells for them and kind of make them worry if they ha- you start losing the frequency of the times that you're meeting up with each other. Like a guide to self-care for people who react positively to quality time would be taking times to do things you enjoy like movies, painting, watching sunsets, going on walks, gardening, read a book, or or just slow down the life around you, having some solitude and spending time doing what you love. I know like my, like you can take tests online. Quality time is the love language that I respond to the most. Uh, Me and Seth, we really didn't meet up with each other very often and that was probably one of the things that bothered me the most. It's so hard to know exactly what people mean through a text and like how they were saying it. And so like I would always have to be assuming it. And since I had like anxiety, I was always assuming the worst of what he could mean by conversations. But when you have that quality time, you can read their body language and their voice tones. And so like I always preferred quality time rather than the text. But that wasn't really something that I was receiving from that friendship. The next love language would be receiving gifts. Uh, The actions that could kind of encourage that love language would be giving gifts, giving time, remembering special occasions, or giving small tokens. You can communicate through private givings of gifts or pleasant facial expressions. These gifts, this always comes across as like really materialistic. It's not really meant to be that way. It's just remembering small things and kind of giving them that attention or that notion that they're like special to you. And these like small little gifts don't have to cost anything. If you sent some of them, sent them a picture on your phone of something that reminded you of a conversation earlier th- that day, that would be something that would really give that affirmation and that positivity to like that person that you're with. Some of the ways that you can practice self-care for someone who thrives off of receiving gifts as their love language would be investing in their hobbies, making themselves uh, a calming self-care kit, start a DIY project, treating themselves, enroll in a fun class, just investing in yourself or buying yourself like small gifts, giving yourself like the sense of reward. The next one would be acts of service, which is another one that... Like you can rank in different categories where you're not purely just one love language and acts of service is another one that I do really well in. Also with acts of service, since like 
depression can make you really tired and can be really difficult to do things throughout the day. It's always nice to have people like help out because it can be really difficult with depression to get like the smallest of tasks completed in a day. Uh, These actions that you could do is like assisting with house chores, uh, ongoing acts of helpfulness or exchanging chores. The way you communicate is by asking like, what can I do for you? Or saying that, hey, I'm gonna stop in and get such and such thing. Today I did blank for you. Or just making a checklist of things that need to be done. Um, you should avoid forgetting promises over committing to task or ignoring task if you're with someone that thrives off of acts of service. And if you are one of those people that react really well to acts of service, some ways that you can practice self care would include setting monthly goals, decluttering, cleaning, keep a habit tracker, donate to charity, meal preps, volunteer, or take care of your basic needs. Uh, Some of these other things would be like making checklists. And if you walk into like my room or look at any notes that I have, I have checklists and lists everywhere because like this is something that really helps me. And so if I'm really stressed, I always make lists of things that I need to do. And I'll declutter small spaces, but because like, I don't know, my mind's such a mess that just comes out in my room, like everything's always a mess. But I do find it a little relaxing to like declutter small spaces, but like a whole room is just a little too overwhelming for me. Uh, The last one would be physical touch. Uh, These actions that could kind of hack that love language would be hugs, pats, touches, sitting close, holding hands. And the communication would be pleasant facial expression or mostly nonverbal communication. Uh, You should avoid, if you're with someone that enjoys like the physical touch love language, which honestly these things that are listed you should probably just avoid in general, would be physical abuse, corporal punishment, threats, or neglect. Uh, If you thrive off of uh, physical touch, some of the ways that you can Practice self-care would include skincare routines, enjoying a cup of tea, doing a few stretches, exercise, taking like bubble baths, eating fruits and veggies, massages, and learning to love your body. So it's really just taking care of yourself in almost like the physical health sense can kind of really help promote your mental health as well. And I know like uh, for depression and anxiety, they're always encouraging like exercise, but if it's not something you enjoy, it doesn't always help. But if you're someone that is really connected to the physical touch, love language, uh, exercise and stretches would probably really promote your mental health more than it would someone else. Before I wrap up, I would like to remind everyone to please send in any listener stories or personal experiments experiences or testimonies to moral of the story podcast 2021 at gmail.com and that will be featured in one of the last episodes of the season and i'll put a little reflection or advice on any situations with that if you want it to be anonymous that's perfectly fine i'll keep it anonymous if you want your name mentioned please put it in writing on the email any names that are used in those stories i will replace this regardless of whether you replaced them beforehand just to be safe on that anonymous anonymity see an enemy whatever <laughs> the next thing that i would like to point out uh our twitter is moral underscore podcast uh, it's i don't use it as much of our instagram account but i do like posts 
releases for the episodes on that account. Our Patreon, I will put a link in my our bio for. And I have three tiers of donations that you can put on our Patreon, which is $3, $5, or $10 a month. If you are the $5 or $10 a month donators, you will get a free sticker after three months and I'll have a picture posted on the Instagram of what that sticker looks like. It's of Milo, my little emotional support animal. And uh, I think there's other gifts that I'm working on at this, like probably after the season ends, I'll start to work on that a little more. But just for starters, you will have something that you can kind of keep as your own if you were to start donating today. Um, Our website is located in our bio of our Instagram and I haven't got the reflections of the episodes uploaded onto the website just yet but I will start to work on that at the end of the season. I'm just a little busy at the moment with having a full-time job and then also trying to get things ready for school and all these other personal projects that I have to get together and I'm also doing this all by my like on my own so it can be a little bit much at the moment but I will put updates on our Instagram account as to when that is ready. Our Instagram, as always, is moralofthestory.podcast, and that's where I'll keep all the updates for. So I highly encourage following the Instagram since that is our main form of communication. Uh, Lastly, the quote that I have is a poem that I found on the Real Depression Project Instagram account, and the poem is called A Poem for Someone with Depression to Their Partner. It's a little different for this one for me to use a poem rather than a quote, but I think it can, it kind of really embodies what it feels like to be in a relationship when you have a mental illness. The poem goes, I watch as you speak, but I hear no sound. My mind seems to wander. My eyes look around. It's not that I don't care. I don't mean to be ungrateful, but I don't feel a thing when you hand a gift across the table. You say I bring the mood down, As I sit looking glum, I wish you understood that everything feels numb. It's hard to be present when life feels surreal. Please know that I do love you as I take the next steps to heal. And that's the moral of the story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next time. (laughs) 